she wrote a thing that uh, that I stuck with me, which was that no one enters violence for the first time by committing it. No one enters violence for the first time by committing it. And it just, like, I was like, Jesus Christ, right? If that's true, then all this shit that we talk about, these binaries about victims and perpetrators, that explodes it all. I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in rural Minnesota. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown, co-editor of Octavia's Brood, author of Emergent Strategy, and author of the forthcoming Pleasure Activism, and a facilitator of Black liberation work, and an auntie extraordinaire living in Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World, our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. And we are so excited today to be sitting here with a dog barking at full strength. Oh my God. Right outside the house. <laughs> and I just want to say this, you all know Bran by now. We've, we've spoken and you've heard Bran before on the show. He mm-hmm. likes to be a guest when we happen to be doing the show in Minnesota. This morning is the official opening of hunting season, um, deer hunting, deer hunting season. season. And so there's a bunch of magical deer hunting activities happening around, and he's very excited about it. And in his excitement, he ran out of the house, knocked over the compost, got it all over himself, and the entire porch had to be... Um, Rinsed off with a hose. So he's super wet and a little stinky, and so he can't come inside, but he knows we're inside. Yeah, so he's outside on the line, and he's going to be barking through the duration of the show. Um, most yeah. likely, he might settle down at some point, but we are not going to let that distract not us from all. the incredibly important conversation we are about to have. Yes. Um, so With our guest. This is so exciting. This is the, um, we're thinking of this as like Me Too Part 2, Me Too Conversation Part 2. We had an earlier r- round of it, and we wanted to return to this conversation around when harm happens, what happens? Like, how do we actually deal with it and so we have one of the best in the game and I her name is Miriam Kaba and I want to say that the first time I came across Miriam Kaba I was in Chicago for something else for another meeting and the news came down that there were going to be reparations for people who were um, torture victims by the police Um, and I was like what reparations in the U.S. like are you talking about and then went to the event the celebration event for it and saw Miriam speak. It was my first time ever seeing you speak. I was blown out of the water. I was like, "Tell me, everybody tell me who she is. I took your picture. I posted online. It's like, everyone has to follow this person. Everyone in Chicago reached out and said, take Miriam's picture down. You can be impressed, but she doesn't like her picture around. Oh. And I was like, okay, my bad. Like, forgive me, but like, I'm already bowing down. Tell me about this person. And then I found out you had like, created every organization that ever existed. <laughs> um, so we want to give a brief bio of, of all that Miriam has done. Um, Miriam Kaba is the founder and director of Project Nia, a grassroots organization with the vision to end youth incarceration. Um, Miriam also co-founded multiple organizations and projects over the years, including the Chicago Freedom School, the Chicago Task Force on Violence Against Girls and Young Women, the Chicago Alliance to Free Marissa Alexander, and the Rogers Park Young Women's Action Team. Um, so, um, 
and clearly that's the tip of the iceberg. That's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> um, we wanted to start out by having you tell us a bit about how you define um, community accountability, transformative justice, and and how you're interacting with Me Too when it comes to those things. Um, sure. Um, I, you know, my definition of transformative justice is basically um, that it is a framework and um, for both kind of for people's ability to get on a path towards healing alongside an organizing um, strategy for trying to get at the roots of forms of violence. Um, that's for me kind of, you know, my elevator one sentence pitch to people about it. I think it's, you know, there's more to the definition, uh, obviously linking it to uh, the people who really uh, popularize that framework uh, are mostly um, women and trans people of color uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s who brought that framework forward um, and kind of tied it specifically to interpersonal violence um, to explain, you know, and to help people understand how interpersonal violence was tied to structural and systemic forms of violence. Um, but, you know, the term itself, transformative justice, really uh, came into being for more people to, to, to like, engage with um, from a woman named Ruth Morris, who uh, was a Quaker uh, organizer based out of Canada, who started using the term transformative justice in the late 80s and the early 90s. Um, so, you know, the lineage of it is longer than the popular incarnation of it. Uh-huh. And um, and then the other piece of that is just like the Me Too movement has kind of swollen and become this massive place where a lot of people are calling for transformative justice and community accountability processes. Yeah. And I'm wondering like how you intersect with that, how you've interacted with that, how you see it. Yeah, um, I have been thinking a lot about Me Too um, and thinking about it as what if we looked at it as something that is not done to quote unquote bad people, uh -huh. but is actually in, to me, is actually um, a way to understand the ways that various forms of violence actually shape our lives. Mm. Um, and if we could see it as uh, a way to kind of understand how deeply enmeshed we are in the very systems that we're organizing to transform, wow. then I feel like, uh, you know, it's a movement that will allow us to move a step towards, um, you know, towards uh, transformation and more justice. Uh, you know, the, the real truth of the matter is that um, when you think about Me Too and you think about sexual violence, um, these things don't live outside of us, you know? Um, they don't really don't. They are systems that live within us, uh, mm. that manifest outside of us. Um, and if we don't really take that seriously, I don't think we're going to make a dent um, in this problem and in this issue. And, you know, the fact that sexual violence is so incredibly pervasive should tell us that it's not a story of individual monsters. Um, and so we got we to gotta think about this in a more complex 
uh, way if we're really going to uproot forms of sexual violence. Just as a follow-up to that, I'm wondering if you could uh, say a little bit more about what you mean by these systems live inside us yeah, as well as outside absolutely. of us. Um, to me, you know, this is something I uh, I take from Morgan Basikis, um, who was part of Oakland-based uh, Communities United Against Violence. Mm. Um, Morgan had written uh, that basically the very systems that were actually working to dismantle live inside us. Um, and that really struck me when I first read it uh, because it, it forced me to acknowledge the, my own complicity in forms of violence that I may not even personally be perpetrating in an intentional way. Um, it also kind of calmed me down to some extent, right? Because I felt um, when you're always in a position of seeing everything as outside of you, then you're always kind of in a, in a uh, very kind of organizer role around these things. And, and it means that you're always on the outside looking in, which I don't think is the, necessarily the best way to often address forms of violence. Um, we have to do both. We have to be on the outside looking in, but also on the inside looking out. Um, and so that, that helped me to think that through. It also explains why it's so persistent, why forms of violence are so persistent. Um, if the systems that we're trying to dismantle didn't live outside us, it would be much easier for us to dismantle them. And that also gives me um, some purchase and understanding over just the scope of the problem and the ways in which we need to address it. Oh, I love that. It's so helpful too because I feel like I, I feel like sometimes when I'm leading workshops with my clients, I'm like, y'all, if we knew how to do this already, we wouldn't be here. That's, <laughs> that's exactly like, it. That's, that's the exactly. feeling. I always say that I feel like we're crawling, like we're crawling, and we think that we're like adolescents or maybe even like mid-teens mm -hmm. level capacity with it, but we're actually like crawling babies, falling mm -hmm. over. I feel like also a lot of what you were just saying relates to the next question that we wanted to ask you which yeah. is um um really we would love to hear the story of when and and where in your um trajectory in this work you really decided to start focusing on working with those who have caused harm and how did that happen for you i've always worked actually more with people who've been harmed uh than have caused harm um i think you know my work was rooted in supporting survivors, mainly because I myself am one. And so my orientation has always been towards addressing harm, wherever it is, and however I can intervene in a way that's supportive. That's really what I care about. And so it didn't really matter that it was, you know, at some point it's the people who are causing harm or the person who's experienced harm, it's the harm that I'm interested in transforming. So um, over the years, more people started approaching me. Um, you know, initially I, I got called into this work, I think it's important to say, um, quite by, uh, you know, kind of happenstance, which was that a friend of mine was sexually assaulted in the early 2000s by somebody else that we knew in common. And I was kind of called in to helping to support her through that process. Like I didn't, asked to do this. I, I still, I'm not paid to do this kind of work. Like this isn't like, uh, 
I, you know, I don't facilitate, I facilitate only within my communities, you know, so it's, it's, um, it became something where it was like, oh, I'm going to try to step in and support these folks who I know. And um, I don't want the harm to compound. And clearly people are in pain. And what can I help do to support that? I'm not trained as a social worker or a psychologist or anything like that. It was really kind of like, this is happening in my community. People are in pain. There's harm. What can we do? And from there is where this began for me about 15 years ago, where people started asking me to come and support them, come and help um, people who had been, who caused harm, reach out and say, this has occurred and I'm trying to figure out what to do. So that's how that happened. Um, and then in the last few years, a couple of um, processes that I facilitated got known by other people because they were public. And through that, more people who've caused harm approached me, uh, or people who knew people who had caused harm would approach me to support them in taking accountability for their actions. And you will note that I said support them in taking accountability for their actions because I'm not able to actually force anybody into taking accountability. It has to be a voluntary process through which somebody decides to do that. And also you can never actually make anybody accountable. People have to be accountable. So I, I wanna just you know, kind of tease that out, be very explicit about that because I think a lot of the frustration that I hear with people who think about transformative justice or community accountability is really people who want to punish people, which I totally understand, they want punishment. Like it's a normal human reaction within a society that we have, which is so incredibly punitive. How do you live outside that? Remember again, the systems live within us. So people are, the punishment mindset is very hard to get out of. And it's normal and healthy often to want vengeance against people for, for causing you great harm. That's like a normal thing. The problem is that's not gonna get addressed in an accountability process if you are the one like rushing after that and that's really what you're seeking an accountability process will not, it really will not help because you're always gonna be feeling as though it's quote, not working because it's not doing the thing that you really would like. And so I really want to make people understand that, you know, first of all, not everything should be in an accountability process. Not everything can be resolved in an accountability process. Accountability process often feel terrible to the people while they're in it. Like it's not a healing process. It put, might put you on the road towards your own personal healing. Like I want people to really understand that so that we can actually do what we can do through these processes with people. So that's just a little bit about, you know, how, how people started coming to me and how I ended up in this position of supporting people sometimes uh, to take accountability for harm. I love this. I love this. I love you because I'm like, this is exactly where we're heading. Like this is exactly what we want to get into basically is like, the experience I have also as someone who's trying to mediate these things is that people go through it. They go through one time. There's like the mis the process doesn't work the way they want it to. They don't feel like we deeply returned to a place of love that we had never reached in the first place. We, we're totally healed. I'm, you know, it's all clear. We don't get that. And then, um, and then people are like, well, transformer justice doesn't work. It doesn't work. Fuck this process. Like, I'm not going to do it. And I remember a couple, you know, I remember we, we got to do a panel together during the Ally Media Conference. And one of the things you said there was it really is just 
turning and being like, how do we want to be treated on our worst day? And like designing a process that's like, this is the worst day in re in for both of these people or for all these people. And how do we want to just be held accountable and to be treated with dignity even on that day? And so I wanted to ask you really, and you started dropping these jewels already, but like if you were to say, what are the things that really make a process fail, right? Like, what are the things that make people process fail? You already said that the person who has caused harm needs to show up ready to take accountability and interested in taking accountability. Um, what are some of the other things that make it fail? And then conversely, what are some of the things that make it succeed? Yes, um, I will say first off that it what while the person has to be in, willing to uh, at least begin a process of taking accountability for their actions, they don't need to necessarily be at the point where they've admitted harm. Okay. Hmm. I, I think this is very important because what is the process for? <laughs> it's to get people to understand how they've harmed people. Right. It's to right. get them to really sit with this harm that happened to this person and to be like, oh my God, I thought I was like doing this right thing and here's the situation and this is the person's experience. So I think often people think before we can even start a process, people have to put out a statement that puts, well, no, the statement process writing thing might be part of the accountability process, but it's not necessarily necessary for the beginning of it yeah. in order to initiate it. And so that's very important for people to understand off the bat. Um, in terms of what I've seen where there've been processes, and I want to say something also briefly about the concept of success and failure. Um, particularly, I say this all the time in trainings that I do with uh, my, uh, my good friend Shira Hassan. Um, we love Shira. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, that um, we read a very short piece that was written by Bench Ansfield and um, Jenna Peters-Golden that talks about getting seduced by uh, the idea of success and failure within processes. And it's really helpful. It was in a piece that was published several years ago in Makeshift, yes, um, yes. A, a feminist magazine. Um, and what I appreciate about that is that they're talking about the fact that actually failure and mistakes are part of a process. Mm -hmm. Like that feels counterintuitive because when people are in pain and have been and suffered and are, have been harmed, you think you have to be perfect in order to protect that person from further harm. Mm. And what I always tell people is that as a survivor and as people, somebody who's been around survivors my entire life and in my community, we are actually not fragile beings. We yeah. are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly pragmatic and very resilient because we've survived a lot of bullshit. And so Going into processes, if you go into it with the idea that the person you're working with is a fragile China, China doll who's going to crack under any pressure, you know, you can't make a mistake, well, then you're already set up for failure. And failure not in the sense of learning, but failure in the sense of potential catastrophic hurt. <laughs> you know? um, you're, already, you're already in that position. So start off with the notion that People know, like, part of a process allows for survivors to reclaim agency. That's what you're mm. working towards, right? So that's okay. So the binary of success, failure, get rid of that. That's important, number one. Number two, I think you have to actually know that what the goals of this process are. A third thing is knowing whether or not you're the right person to actually get into this. Like, what is the self-assessment that has happened 
where you know something about yourself and how you're going to, you know, how do you have the support system that'll help you navigate this? Are you facilitating this by yourself? Do you have a team of people? How are you going to end this process? Because it should not be something that goes on for 90 years. Mm -hmm. There should be an end to it. And how will you know it is over? Um, You know, and having goals will help you in that. So those are all very critical, important things to have at the outset or to be working out through the process. Um, I think the failure parts or like the places that will ensure ineffectiveness are not knowing like whether or not you're the right person to hold this. It's not having any goals. It's the opposite, you know, the other side of the thing I just said are the ingredients that you need for a strong process. It's really not being clear with people about what the wants and needs are. Like what, what do people really want? And you can't get, you, people cannot get all their wants met in a process. So those are some of the things. Mm. So just as a follow-up to that, um, are there processes that you're like, I feel like I have to walk away from this. And are there processes that you've heard from that you're like, oh, I need, I know what to offer. You know, like are there time, do you only respond to people like come help? Or are there things where you're like, hey, I see y'all over there. Cause sometimes I, I'll say this. I, sometimes I do that where I'll see people, you know, yesterday someone posted something and I was like, Hey girl, let me, let's, what, what, tell me what's going on. Is there anything that I can do to support it? Like I'll do that sometimes when I see stuff going off the rails and I imagine you're in a place where people are coming to you so often. But so I'm just curious. Did you intervene on Cardi B and Nicki Minaj? I called Cardi. I was like, girl, <laughs> girl, just this kidding. Is, this is not helping you. Um, <laughs> I mean, actually it's not helping Nicki. But anyway, feelings, thoughts. Um, but yeah, are there processes that you're like, I'm actually, I'm going to walk away from this. There's not a way to do this with integrity. And are there processes that you're like, I got to get in there. I, I know I'm the right person for it, even if they don't know that yet. Yeah, no, I never seek out any processes ever. Um, that is not, you know, I, I mentioned to you before that I, I don't do this for uh, like, I'm not getting paid for it. It's not a job for me. Uh, it's not a way of sustenance. It's just, it's a political commitment mm. that I make because I'm in community with people who aren't going to avail themselves of the systems that currently exist for mm-hmm. multiple reasons. Right. And it also fits within my larger political commitment to um, PIC abolition. So, you know, uh, because of that is why I'm engaged. So I, so I never seek out any sort of processes. People come to me, frankly, much more than I can even offer any support around. But I always, I'm, all, I'm very good about boundaries and I'm very good about, like, I learned how to do that in my life. So I'm very good about, like, confining myself to what I really think I can offer. Mm-hmm. And often I'm already holding other processes. I'm one person. There's no way I could give uh, with, you know, I can, I can be, have integrity and give what needs to be done to everything if I'm just yeah. all over the place. Yeah. So I really, really focus on that. And I always tell people where I stand. And sometimes I can try to help people figure out whether a process is possible. So I might do that. Um, you know, so those are the kinds of things I would do. This is all just so um, yeah. instructive and helpful. I think especially because I'm, I mean, one, just this piece that's around like not going towards processes and really just um, uh, responding to people. Because I, my sense in there is also that like it's about responding when people are extending trust. Yeah. 
and yeah. and not assuming trust by extending towards. Um, so that's just very, very instructive, I think, for all of us in movements. Um, yeah, I hear that. I also think there's something interesting. And I think you get called in a lot of times because we, we're all seeing stuff play out. You know, like we'll be seeing stuff play out and it's playing out in a way that's like really unhealthy. And so sometimes it's like, even if, even if no one's trusting anyone right now for the safety of our movements, for the safety of our communities, we're trying to say, Hey, stop doing it this way. Right. Like so often for me, I'm like, Hey, Facebook is not the place for this conversation. This is a legitimate conversation that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And Facebook is feeding it directly to those who, um, will use it against us. I mean, that's a, you know, that's the, that's the movement orientation I came up in. So sometimes even if I'm like, I can't necessarily help y'all, but I can say, or I can be, I would love to be a voice that says, call Miriam. (laughs) And get well, some help. And, it, and, and I, what I yeah. hear in what you're describing is the difference between intervention yeah. versus support. Yes. Right. Yeah. That like that oh, I, in, in our movement spaces, we do need those kinds of interventions of like, hey, y'all take this offline. Yeah. Like this is not the way that we're going to get healing or yeah. accountability. Yes. But I'm hearing the the difference between like those kinds of interventions versus like, um, yeah. what level of like commitment is required in order to be a part of a sustained process. That's great. And that, that is just helpful for me as a distinction too. Yeah. I'm wondering too, um, you had said earlier that the process isn't about healing, that the healing can come from it, but that the process is not about that. And I'm wondering if you can, if you could just like, take us in a little bit on that question because I I personally really struggle with this question of like what is the relationship between healing and accountability yeah you know especially coming out of like a healing justice framework um in terms of my like movement background like there's a part of me that's like well obviously um healing has to be a part of the work but I guess I'm hearing something there and what you're saying about like the, whether it can be the focus of the process is the question. Yes, this is a great question. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to backtrack one second um, to the question of intervention versus support. I also think we, we need to make distinctions between conflict resolution and accountability processes. There are many. Say it, Miriam, say it. I think that's right. And I think like, I'm not an actual, I'm not an expert in conflict resolution actually i've never taken a like class i don't know how to you know what i mean like that's not the work i do i help some people facilitate processes of accountability which is different and so i think that we we just sometimes we're like all over the place in our language but also that leads to people thinking they're doing everything and then they're doing nothing so i think that's really important to keep in mind so jumping to the question that you actually asked about healing i think it's such an important question um and it's so it's i've come to my understanding of this through being part of processes now many of them which is that initially i i thought that these processes were intended for healing but i turned out that i wasn't actually asking the people involved what their needs and wants were and for many people it was not actually healing they were they were not trying like their need was not to heal within this particular space their needs were to have an acknowledgement of the harm that occurred 
to insist that this person never do this again, to address issues around trust and figuring out how to you know, trust people again. It was uh, self-agency and self-accountability. Like there were a list of things and healing almost never came up. So that sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but I realized later on why that was. And it was because people were actually understanding that to heal, they needed a different kind of space to be in. They were, they were initially coming to me at a point where it was high amounts of pain, suffering, lots of emotions happening, like so much stuff happening that they could, it wasn't even like, it wasn't even in their head at the moment that he, like healing, it was like, I'm just trying to maintain. I'm, this is going to help me get to the point where I can feel like I can be in my apartment by myself again. I need people around me to do that. So how am I going to get my friends on board with coming and visiting me every other week? Like things like that were what was needed to get on a path towards their own very long journey towards a healing space. But it wasn't a destination within the process itself. And that helped me figure out later on when people would say, I didn't get healing. I was like, oh, okay. The, like from, I was hearing other people say like in the process was really traumatic for me. It brought up all this stuff for me. It was painful for me. It was whatever. And people were like, oh, then that meant that it, it was ineffective and that it was failing. And I was like, actually in hearing how people were talking about that, I was like, actually this process sounds like it was doing exactly what was needed to get this person a year down the road towards their own healing, figuring out what that would look like. So it doesn't, I'm not saying that these things are, that you won't necessarily get what you need to heal in a process. I'm just saying that for many, many times, processes feel terrible because the harm is so central. And because the person, and if you're engaged in the process of, with the person who harmed you, my God, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's bringing up so much stuff that if you're constantly trying to grab at the healing, you're not in the, in the harm, processing that. You're outside looking for that destination that's somewhere down the road. But no, actually, we have to be right here right now, handling all that, the fear, the anger, the vengeance feelings, the back and forth sliding against one day you want them dead, the next day you're okay. Like, we just have to be here holding this right now. So that's, that's what I mean by like, it's not often feels like it's not a healing space because you, you know, healed is not a destination. You're just always in process. So, so I, I just, that's what I'm talking about. Doesn't mean that what you experience can't help towards that healing. No, of course it does in its best way, in its best iteration. But while you're in it, often does not feel that way at all. Mm. So helpful. This is super incredible. And I'm just like, a question that's coming up for me as a follow-up in this is, I, I wanna ask you to speak a little bit about manipulation. Um, and I feel like, um, well, first of all, I want to thank you for the jewel you dropped long ago about conflict resolution versus accountability process versus other things, because I do think that in the realm of transformative justice, it all gets glopped together. And even just being able to pull out a distinction, uh, for folks is so helpful of like, yeah. 
is what you want a healing process between you on a personal level? Is what you want accountability? Is this a conflict resolution? Is it a professional conflict resolution? Or is it something that's outside of the professional context? All of that stuff is just like, oh, you know, sometimes you're helping people just by being like, what do you need? Go back and think about that. Mm -hmm. But I've also seen the work and I feel like it's, to me, it's, it's tied in with the healing so much because it's like one of the ways that an unhealed system operates with the world is by trying to manipulate the world in order to feel safe. And so it will manipulate those closest to them. It will manipulate institutions. It will manipulate movements. It will manipulate social media. There's just manipulation that happens. And I find that for me, a lot of times if I'm hearing about a process publicly before anything has happened, or if I'm hearing about um, harm publicly, when there's been no move for an accountability process. A lot of times that's one of the things I look for. I'm like, is manipulation happening here? Like, is there something about engaging people in, instead of actually dealing with the harm, you know? Um, and I want, and, and it, it breaks my heart because when I see it, you know, what I see happen is eventually people are going to recognize they're being manipulated and eventually that person's going to get ostracized or pushed away. It, it's just a matter of time. I see it happen over and over again. And I can think of 12 different people in the movement time that I've been in who you never see or hear from now, but at some point they were like the center of some harm situation. And so I'm, I want to ask you in this, how do we deal with that on a movement level? How do you deal with it in these processes? Do you name it directly to someone? Like how do you navigate water so that someone who's using manipulation as a tool can actually also have an, a chance to start their path towards healing, a chance to be accountable? Yeah, you know, that's a very good question. Um, I, I, for me at least in my, in, in practically, I've just been like, we sometimes in our attempt to reclaim some self-determination and to have some agency, um, we step into very kind of negative um, negative behaviors to survive um, and that so that that it, it rem it's important to remain compassionate towards that while still firmly calling it out when you see it at playing out in a destructive way so it's this is why I always think you know what accountability processes at their best do for people is to help people take responsibility within a context of support. And if you're in that moment where you're always reminding people that you're still in support of them, you're with them, you're accompanying them, accompaniment is the purpose of an accountability process for me. If that's true, then you have to trust me in being able to say things that I see through this process. Like part of me being accompanying you on this journey is that we have to trust each other. We don't have to actually like each other. So this is really important as well, which is like sometimes people I've worked with, I don't actually like. Like we, and I, they don't like me, I think. You know, like we, our personalities don't necessarily mesh or match. We're different kinds of people. We would never probably even be in this situation if we weren't in broader community where there were some connections somehow with somebody else and that's how this person came into my world so i always want to be really clear with people that 
in order for me to be the facilitator with you on this, to accompany you through this, I'm going to have to say some uncomfortable things. I'm also going to maybe do things that you're going to be very upset at me over. And our, and the promise I'm making is that I'm still going to walk beside you or be beside you even when things are not easy. And so this, I keep, I reiterate that regularly, like, cause I've, I've been in, in conflict with um, people in accountability process that I'm supporting. Like yeah. I've been in conflict <laughs> with them because I've said, you know what, I'm assuming that today you're not at your best. Your best self hasn't shown up today. And I, and it's my responsibility to call that out today. Like you are not being your best self today. Today's the day when you, it's clear to me, we, we should take, we should do take two. We should come back in a week uh-huh. when, when you are able to handle some of this in a different, in a better way. So this, this means that we have to be trusting of each other. And mm-hmm. that's why I'm, I keep repeating to people that you cannot really do accountability processes on the hire, like hiring that's for right. hire. It that's won't right. work. Everything is about the relationship. Everything that is the unit that matters here is the relationship we build with each other that allows us to build trust over time so that I, where I'm accompanying you and you are coming along until you're able to like be self-determined in that we always self-determined until you're able to re-seize your agency, get to your point where you're like, I'm ready to be on my road to healing now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need yeah. this process to do that. Yeah. Um, I have one follow-up question here <laughs> because this piece around you don't get paid for it. It can't be done for hire. Um, and yet I really have a strong commitment to like people being supported for their labor. And it feels like a huge amount of labor to step in and, and do this walk with someone. And, um, so I wonder a little bit about, I get, I get it. Right. I wonder like, how do you set boundaries so that your labor is protected? How do you set, how do you acknowledge your own labor? How do you make sure that other people are acknowledging like So they're not just like, well, Miriam's just going to show up no matter what the fuck I do. So I'm just going to do Right. Like, how do you make sure that you're like, okay, like I'm getting my, my labor needs covered somewhat. Like just how do you, how do you handle that part? I think it's such an important question, Adrian Marie. I, but I have to say that I'm still struggling. I don't, I don't know the political economy of this. This is why I don't think this will ever be quote to scale. Be, you know, like the, the language of that doesn't even make sense to me within this kind of work. And so I, I'll say this: it's why I don't see quote transformative justice as quote an alternative to incarceration. Like the, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go into that another time if we have time. But. I, I'm like, wait, 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 no, go tell me that. more, tell me more. <laughs> I'll come back, I'll come back to that in a minute. But I, so the political economy of this just doesn't scale up. And, we, and in some parts of our world, we have to be okay with that. Like, I don't like capitalism constantly infects our brains, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, to the point where we can't like, some things don't scale. And I don't think community accountability processes scale. And so given that that's the reality, then how would I charge? Well, like money-wise, like how in our current system would I charge by the year? Because most things take two years that I've been part of. How would I do that? By the hour? My God, like it doesn't even, there's just, 
like our brains aren't big enough at this point to even be able to imagine how that would work out political <laughs> economy wise. That's my feeling about it. So I let that go. And all I keep reminding myself and the people I'm in community with, if I'm in a process is we're doing this because we have a political commitment towards bigger things, ideals for how we treat each other, the interests that we all have, the animating question that we all have, which is how do we adjudicate and evaluate harms, right? In a way that is just, how do we do this? And we are testing that out by practicing together, being in relationship with each other, transforming our human relationships so that we have a transformed world. That's why we're doing it. So I don't know. I, you know, I feel like the people who I'm with in that space always respect that. They know too. So I've not had these experiences because I think I'm not being, I'm not called out into doing it. So, you know, I don't know. People have respected that I've put in time, that they have put in time, that other community members have put in time. So we've, I have never really experienced people who've said, oh, because I'm not in those processes with those types of people. I love that. I appreciate that. And I, I'll say one thing and then jump in. I think that this means it's like, then that means so many more people have to be, have to be yes. skilled, right? Everybody like the scale doesn't come from money. The scale comes from everyone learning the skills to be this with each other. Yes. <laughs> Breakthrough. <laughs> and yes. one of the things I'm also really hearing yeah. in this, and Miriam, you can correct me if I'm like misunderstanding you, mm. but I think there's something here too about like recognizing that the, the like labor of the person supporting the process is not more valuable than the labor yeah. of the people, the people who actually like experienced harm or caused harm, like yes. the labor that they're doing too. Doing and of course, inside of a capitalist economy, yeah. we tend to, we, we do value people's labor differently, right? Yeah. Like, especially if someone's brought in because they have like some kind of expertise. Yeah. But the reality is that like what you're describing is something like because the because the central unit is the relationship, it means that everyone's laboring is actually the same. Mm-hmm. Like my and I know from my from my experiences facilitating accountability processes, I feel like the emotional labor that I'm doing is actually mirroring the emotional labor that the the survivor is doing in a way that's like been very confusing, but also like very deep to experience too. Yes. You know, I love that. And yes, 125%. That's exactly it. Right. Which is that just by you choosing a different way of trying to transform this harm, that is labor. That is a contribution to our evolution as human beings who will have transformed relationships enough so that we can create the conditions where these horrible death-making institutions no longer need to exist. Because we have figured out such a way to be with each other in community that these things no longer need to exist for people. That's like, that's the big thing. You see, like, that's what I, that's why I can't explain to people who want me to be in a capitalist mode all the time, how this shit works, or who want me to quote, scale it up for a grant or what, like, it's not going to work. That's why. So I feel like that's exactly you, you all, you both just nailed it exactly on the head, you know, and articulated it better than I do. But that's, that's what I mean by this, Um, this work being, not 
it's the political economy not supporting that because we're not even after the same thing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. So then we got to now go back to the thing that you said earlier where you were like, this is not an alternative to incarceration. I'm like, now I need to understand though that like that. I mean, I think I'm understanding what you're saying that, that the, the emotional work, relational work of accountability processes, because it's a fundamentally different type of work it's it can't be an alternative but yeah but i just i'm like explain this to me help me understand it break it down miriam <laughs> so um so i always think about the fact first of all i don't like the term alternative to prison or alternative to incarceration why because the word prison and incarceration is still in that term which what it does is it conditions you to think that we need one to ones so, for example, instead of thinking about harm, you right away start thinking about crimes, which are not the same, right? Harm and crime aren't the same thing. We need to decouple those things. Mm-hmm. And then you end up thinking, well, all the things that people go to prison for, we need alternatives for. When in fact, the point is that there's a whole bunch of shit that people are going to prison for that shouldn't that are not actually harmful to anybody else and shouldn't be crimes. And there's a whole bunch of harm that is actually harmful that we're not taking into account because the current system you know has has focused us on this site of of containment of a certain group of people who we want to dispose of so the idea then when you start telling people you start saying well transformative justice is an alternative to incarceration people start thinking about prison and so they start thinking about whatever the meaning of prisons and incarceration and incapacitation is capacious People impose their own values on that. People have all sorts of issues that come up. You can't even get at what I've been talking with you about for the last 45 minutes, which is the transformation of our relations such, though, such, as, such so that we can handle conflicts in healthier ways so that we can have a whole different world than the world we're living in right now that we can't even begin to imagine. That's the project. That's the project. It's not the alternative to incarceration slash alternative to prison. That's so limiting. It's not enough. It's completely dependent on the current view of how we contain and address harm. And what we need is an ability for having our imaginations unleashed, for the ceilings on our imaginations to be removed. And as long as the PIC exists as the center of our work, that can't happen. Because the PIC's job is to completely make us unable to imagine anything other than itself so that's what i mean by like we're not actually so stop using our things it's like this is the alternative to the prison the other no no that's not what we're fighting for y'all so when people even talk to me about like the prison only matters to me in the because it causes so much fucking harm my interest is in the transformation of harm and i happen to address prisons and policing and surveillance as a byproduct of that not the other way around right not as the center now other people may see me that way because that's how they see the snippets of my life or whatever but i care about harm above all that's what i care about addressing i want responses to that that allow us to build towards a liberatory future so that, so that, so that's why I mean by just the, this, the, like, just you know, basic visionary shit. All I want to say, basic, basic visionary, visionary shit. shit. That's <laughs> all I want. You know, just 
Oh, That's all. Miriam, you're just like, we're over here like. Falling out. Falling out. Praise hands. Falling having out. Having a Praise dancing. Um, barking. And, and we know that we have, you know, only a few minutes left with you. Um, I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how doing this work has been transformational for you and how it's, if and how it's changed your relationship to your own history. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you for that question. Because I really wouldn't be doing this only as a political project if it wasn't also transforming me in the process of doing this work with other people. I, um, my friend Danielle Serrett has said and written this thing that really made a difference for me. She runs a Danielle project. Danielle is a, one of my closest friends, so I'm just so excited about that. Yes. Wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. She's lovely and um, runs this program here in New York called, or organization called Common Justice, uh, which people should look up um, for multiple reasons. But she wrote a thing that, uh, that stuck with me, which was that no one enters violence for the first time by committing it. No one enters violence for the first time by committing it. And it just, like, I was like, Jesus Christ, right? If that's true, then all this shit that we talk about, these binaries about victims and perpetrators, that explodes it all. Because it turns out that we're all, all at, at heart, it's the harm that exists that has motivated and transformed us and allowed us to, con to continue, if we're not intervened with, to, to keep harming people in bigger and bigger ways. When we, we know we're all going to harm each other, it's a matter of degrees, right? So I just, like, being in this work with people has helped to make that thing, what she said there, come to life and be real for me in a way that just undergirds my values and my beliefs in real, real ways. Um, the other second thing that I've learned about myself is how much I realize that punishment does not work, that it does not work. It, like if it actually did what people wanted, we'd be in a whole different place. And because I know that, and because I know that not only is it true through my work that punishment doesn't work, when you prioritize punishment, it means that patriarchy remains firmly in place. Yes! Ugh. And if I am, at my core, interested in dismantling systems of oppression, I got to get rid of punishment. I got to do it. And, but I want accountability. I want people to take responsibility. I want that internal resource that allows you to take responsibility for harms that you commit against yourself and other people. I want that to be a central part of how we interact with each other. Because I do, while I don't believe in punishment, I believe in consequences for actions that are done to harm other people. I do, I think boundaries are important. I think all these things are really important, but with punishment at the center of everything, we haven't been able to really address the other stuff that needs to happen because people fucking need to take you know, they need to take accountability when they harm people. That's yes. right. Can I just ask like a quick follow up to that? Yeah. Can you just give for our listeners and for us an example of like a punishment versus a consequence? Yes. Yes, um, sure. You know, punishment means inflicting cruelty and suffering on people. Um, when you are expecting consequences, those can be unpleasant and uncomfortable, but they are not suffering and inflicting pain on people, right? 
and you want them to suffer as a result. That is different. And so what I mean by that is, for example, uh, powerful people stepping down from their jobs are consequences, not punishments. Why? Because we should have boundaries. And because shit that you did that was wrong and you having power is a privilege. That means we can take that away from you. You don't have power anymore. But if we were punishing you, we would make it so that you can never make a living again in any context at any point. That's inflicting cruelty, suffering, and making it so that people cannot actually live a life. They can't access the basic things that you need to make your life livable. If you are doing that to somebody, you're punishing them. If, they, if you are making sure that, if you're asking somebody to move to another place because they caused harm to the people living there, consequence. If you're making it so that person can never have housing, punishment. Okay, so like you have to just be able to see the difference between inflicting cruelty, cruelty, pain, and suffering, and being uncomfortable and losing some privileges. These are not the same things. That feels like it's so like helpful. the different consequences <laughs> versus cancellation, right? Like mm-hmm. this has been my thing of like, I will not cancel people. And people are like, you're a softie. I'm like, no, no, no. I want consequences, but I don't believe in canceling someone's whole life over harm. Um, so there's one last thing I wanted to ask you, because you made an earlier thing about statements. You know, you're like, yeah, people want to put these statements out and they want to put it out right away and all this stuff. And I find that particularly when someone is like a person of power is held accountable or they're stepping down, they like issue these statements and then we pull the statement apart. We're like, look, see, they don't mean, sh- they don't even mean it. They don't even, know. this is so, they just threw, whatever. Yes. It's always, it never works out well. So I wondered, <laughs> just as a, as a last question here, is, is there ever an appropriate time to make a statement? When is the time to make a statement? You mean if or you've caused harm? If you've caused harm, if you've caused harm or if you're in these processes, like, is a statement actually necessary? Is it, can it be helpful? Like, I, I just feel like it's so rare that I see a statement work the way that, you know, the person who's writing is like, Poor my, I want people to think I'm good. And it's like, in this moment, people are not gonna be able to think that you're good. Something else is happening. Like until you actually serve those consequences, something else is happening. So I'm just curious from your experience, like statement, yay, nay? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, statements are useful depending on the context. Um, you know, that it's really, that's, that, that is the answer, maybe unsatisfactory, but it is the answer. It depends on the context. There are times when a a statement is needed by an organization, for example, because of something that occurred within the organization, the organization is public facing and has a constituency, whether it's their members, their funders, the people, and people want to know, and people feel like they have a right to know. So in those cases, sometimes you have to put something out. Sometimes the statement is part of the process. So somebody will say, one of my needs is for this person to publicly acknowledge what they did to me. Now, you might work with that person to be like, okay, they can only publicly acknowledge to a certain degree because we still live under the fucking carceral state. So, you know what I mean? Like, they may say something that will put them in, and you don't want that. You don't want them in the system. So we got to work on what's going to be acceptable for you to be put out in the public space. So it becomes a negotiation within a process, right? And it's about, again, the trust building, the fact that you want to see whether or not, sometimes I'll have people in a process write a statement that will go out to nobody, but to the person who caused harm. That's it. And we've have agreements at the beginning of confidentiality. Like I have a set of agreements for everybody that I get into a process with at the very beginning. And it's like, well, how are we gonna deal with communication? What if people do break the rules? What like, you know, what's our communication plan? Like we have to have all that written out. Everybody signs it. 
And so we have, a, you know, we're modeling within our process how we want to interact with each other and how we want our relationships to be. It is a test run of the world that we want to engage in. We're prefiguring that world through this accountability process, right? Miriam, you, I think that both Autumn and I agree that we could sit and talk with you for so many hours. You are such a great teacher at your work. Um, yeah, sit at your feet and also sit by your side and just watch you do this. And also uh, cast, I want to cast a lot of um, spiritual <laughs> protection around you because I just feel like you are going into the shadows and going into deep waters and going into places that folks are really scared like we know we need to turn and face things in this way and at this depth but I think we're so scared to do so and the fact that you just continuously do so and do so while also like lifting up your head and being like okay y'all here's the next lesson here's the next practice here's the next thing like you just keep making sure that we're with you and that we can be with you um so I just deep 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 gratitude to you for for answering the calling of your life in such a clear and and um, precise way thank it's you incredible. both so much for having me i um, i i listened to the podcast um I'm, you know oh, what is it what they say long time long time listener first time caller is that okay, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So thank you for your work, both of you. And thank you for holding so much in our movements um, and in our communities. And I have such, you know, admiration and appreciation for you both. So thank you so much. Thank you, Miriam. And thank you so much for your time this morning. Three-way swoon. We love you. Three-way swoon. Bye. Bye, Bye, love. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. That was incredible. That was amazing. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash into the world show. Sometimes you just have to sing it to get all the That's way That's how through. I could get it out. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person. Thank you. You can also volunteer to take care of Bran while we're recording the the podcast you know where's future. my like rural minnesota people who can volunteer rural to just minnesota, come walk just my come dog while i'm recording how to survive the end of the world is produced and edited by the very beautiful zach rosen music for today's show comes from mother cyborg Scrrr.